Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So the art and food world have a symbiotic relationship. It's no secret restaurateurs in a perpetual search for affordable real estate often follow artists into neighborhoods that might be considered edgy, willing to take the risk on a great space with soaring ceilings, much like the artist, the restaurateur desires a connection with a particular space or building that suits a vision for creative expression or as my guest today, who you will meet in a moment, eloquently put it relative to his world, venues provide a context. If you are fortunate enough as an operator to attract the art world initially, you are almost assured the rest of the world will follow. The art world carries weight. Art can also play a significant role in the aesthetic of a restaurant from the architecture of the building shell the interior designs, the, I'm sorry, the interior design displays of art on the walls to the presentation of food and drink, as well as the selection of music that plays on at any given time, day or night. And I've been known to have my iPhone handy and will act as an undercover DJ, adjusting the music to fit the mood as each night has slightly different energy. My first awareness of the effective use of art in a restaurant was in the early 70s at my dad's restaurant, The Cellar, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My father hung eight by 10 black and white photos of jazz greats around the room. The images of those luminaries whose modest yet impactful presence on the walls combined with the elegance of my dad and his tailored blazer elevated a casual neighborhood restaurant into a trailblazing experience for like-minded black folks from around the country. Alberta Wright, owner of the visually stunning theater district restaurant Jezebel that opened in the early eighties was a master curator. She hung Warhol prints on the walls in a room lit by baccarat chandeliers serenaded by a classical pianist while plates piled high with golden brown fried chicken and bottles of expensive French wine contributed to making every night a feast for all the senses. Alberta was a true pioneer of black culture through culinary artistic expression. So my guest today, Franklin Sermons, is fascinating and highly accomplished with a keen sense of what it means to curate an experience. Franklin is an art critic editor, writer, and curator. Currently, he is the director of the Perez Art Museum Miami. I first became aware of Franklin when he worked at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and his role as department head and curator of contemporary art, one of several prestigious roles in an illustrious career that finds him at the apex of important voices in the art world. I met Franklin during his LA tenure through a mutual friend, the artist Lisa Soto, who introduced us when Franklin was dining at my former restaurant, Post and Beam in LA. So here we are once again at the intersection of art and food. I've been looking forward to speaking with Franklin to hear about his move to Miami in 2015. And as a fellow native New Yorker, 
hearing his thoughts on the cities he's lived in, as well as the role that art plays in adding to the narrative of place and time. Franklin, so happy to see you, man. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Brad, good to see you. Thank you for having me. I mean, you've already had such an incredible lineup of people that you've been in conversation with, but really the glue that holds it all together is it's just listening to you just now talk about the way that you wed these things together and, you know, having experienced a little bit of that, I just, I really appreciate it and I look forward to seeing you a lot more here. Yeah, me too, man. Thank you for that. So we, we start things off with what I call our short order questions. So I'll pop a few off of these towards you and get you a quick reaction. So Franklin, tell me what's on your playlist these days in terms of music? What are you listening to? Oh, wow. I love this question. Right now, I've, I've been thinking, and I go through this kind of cycle a lot, but listening to Michelle and Deggio Cello a little bit too much because that's what I do. Like, and I, I feel like... If there's anyone that I've had a kind of umbilical cord to music wise since I've been thinking through exhibitions over the last 20 years, 20 something years, it's been her, Michelle and Deggio Cello and her music. And it's a wide variety of things that I listen to in that vein. Also spent a magical moment at in New York City a few weeks ago in listened to a set by a woman named Sabina Blazin, uh, a DJ who's playing Ama Piano, you know, this uh, South African kind of blend of, of house and, 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 and soul. And, and, and so I've just been completely ensconced in her music and, and in that music right now. So I'm all over the place as per usual. And then on a day like today, when I came in really early, I needed a dose of some gang star just to prepare for the day so it's a wide variety <laughs> that is a wide variety that plantation lullabies album of Chilla, man I, I listen that's on regular on my regular rotation man yep. can't stay away from that so tell me what is speaking of mornings what's your morning beverage? I have a little Nespresso uh a little espresso that uh, starts to, to to kick off the day a little bit and you know at this point trying to trying to find balance and, and, and watch all of those things. So <laughs> it's I not, you know, not too much of it, but a little espresso. Right? Yeah. Everything in moderation. <laughs> yes, sir. How about your exercise routine? I know you play a little bit of tennis, but so what do you do for fitness? Oh yeah. I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have tennis, both for the, the, the physical outlet, but also for the spiritual outlet. So, I mean, I, I played both, both days on the weekend. And so I took yesterday, you know, like a lot of people during COVID, my wife and I bought a Peloton. So I was on the Peloton yesterday for a little bit. And today is, is, you know, is a really busy kind of day. So I'm just trying to get the steps in. Yeah, man. Okay. How about your favorite restaurant in Miami at the moment? Oh, I'm going to say Rooster. I yeah, spent my okay. birthday there last month, so um, uh, it's definitely a favorite. And uh, yeah, that place is beautiful, man. It's what beautiful, a, amazing but, job they did. You know, as you know, like when you mention the cellar, my head starts going. And I also, I love, I love. There's a little place called Wyatt that is absolutely phenomenal on 54th Street and uh, Northeast Second. Cool, man. I'll mark yeah. that down. Last one of these. What are you reading? What books are on your nightstand, Frank? 
Oh, I'm reading the I'm reading the the Joe the new Joan Didion um, book of nonfiction that has a, a big big forward by Hilton House. So that's what I've been reading. Nice, nice. All right, so let's let's jump in. So I want to say I recently visited the Perez, and man, what a what a beautiful building! Expansive outdoor space, great restaurant. I had lunch there. The food was fantastic. I had a Cobb salad. I loved your oh Cobb good Cobb salad. oh good. Outside view of the bay, the causeway, boats passing. I mean, what a what an amazing environment. And uh, I also, I met Fawn Johnston, who she works in guest services. Man, you couldn't have found anybody better to do that than her. And she couldn't have been nicer. I mean, shout out to Fawn. She gave me a copy of The Allied with Power. Oh, good. Uh, from the uh, exhibit that you just had. Yeah. So thank you very much for that, Fawn. So Frank, let's start. As a director of the Perez, by job description, the, the scope is broad. Give a sense of what the job entails and how that differs or overlaps with what a curator might do. For sure. I mean, the, the, I think the beautiful thing, the thing that I love about the job of, of director is that you know, a good portion of it is a continuation of what we do in curatorial, right? We think through exhibitions, we think through working with artists and, and presenting artists' work to the best possible means that we have. So that's a significant part of, of each and every day. But the other big part is really, it's ambassadorial and it's about fundraising and making sure that we are able to create the space that 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 is most conducive for people to enjoy art and to get something out of it. Like some people want to come in and just stand in front of a painting for a little while. Other people want moving images. And so, you know, I think in a museum of our size, we call it medium size. We have about 3000 plus works in our collection and we have exhibitions that are coming in and out every three to six months. We're trying to give something a little bit for everyone. And so I love thinking through that hat. And I think that's, that's the difference. Being in the director position, as opposed to being in the curatorial position is as a curator, you're thinking about that, that one thing. And it takes time to build on that one thing, that one show. I get to work with a wonderful team of, of curators to think of these things from a different point of view. And mm -hmm. that's what I, I love about it. And, and as a director now and having been a curator, is that kind of like having played basketball and then going into coaching and, and you know, continuing to move up through the ranks? Is it because you can relate as a player, as a coach? I mean, is there some, yeah. is it analogous in a way? I love the, you know, I think there's definitely something to that. And I think about it often. I mean, I, I, I tend to think through the lens of, of football or soccer, but it's the same, same kind of metaphor is yeah. that, yeah, I can relate to, to a lot of the things that they're going through having been in that position. And at the same time, I have an incredible uh, team of, of, of coaches, assistant coaches that make everything go tick throughout the entire institution. You know, and just so, so you know, I mean, we're talking about uh, pre-COVID $15 million budget. We have in between 100 and 150 people on, on staff. So, you know, it's a lot of things that, that, that make it go around and, and relationships. You know, obviously we have a, a restaurant that is maintained by a Constellation a food group. So we all work together. That's, that's it. That's the, that's the fun part. A lot of moving parts. So yeah. um, here's a quote from, I believe, the museum's mission statement quote. It says, the Perez Art Museum Miami, led by director Franklin Sermons, promotes artistic expression and the exchange of ideas 
advancing public knowledge and appreciation of art, architecture, and design, and reflecting the diverse community of its pivotal geographic location at the crossroads of the Americas, end quote. So Franklin, can you elaborate a little bit on the geographic location Miami as quote, the crossroads of the Americas and how the statement plays out and how you program the museum or view its role in relationships to the local community? Absolutely. I think that, so we started as an institution, as a smaller institution in 1984 called the Center for Fine Arts. We became a collecting institution in the mid nineties and, and now moved into this incredible building that you referenced at the end of 2013. And, and I'd say every step of the way has been about our relationship to community, to enhancing and to building upon that relationship, right? We're here in Miami. We shouldn't be like any other museum dedicated to modern and contemporary art. What sets us apart? What makes us unique? And so what we say is we like to see things through a Miami lens and in a simple way, that means to me that we have to be the very best at presenting the work of Latin America and the work of the Caribbean. We look toward the African diaspora and we tried to be very strong in terms of our collecting, in terms of our programming and our exhibitions, and in terms of the way that we um, represent ourselves to the world. That has been the, the, the center kind of defining um, point as an example. If somebody wanted to learn about Cuban art, they have to come here. If you don't come here, you can't say that you're being serious about wanting to learn about contemporary Cuban art. You know, we have a collection of at least 500 works solely dedicated to Cuban artists. And that's, that's about a little less than 20% of our entire collection. But it also means that there's an exhibition called On the Horizon at the Frisk Museum in Nashville right now, all from our collection. So we want to be able to say that. And the only way that that comes to being is by representing Miami, by, by being truly engaged in the people and art of, of this place in particular. Likewise, two years ago or three years ago, we started a Caribbean Cultural Institute within our institution. And, and so that's what that means. You know, we know that we are in a city where 70% of the population speaks a language other than English at home, more or less Spanish. We know that we also are in the rare city in this country where you walk into a government building and you have three languages, right? Not just the English and the Spanish, but you also have to add Creole. So we know that this is our history and this is what sets us apart. And we think that that kind of reference to the historical in some ways can play out for a potentially better future, right? Can we be the place where a diverse group of people in this community can come together and have difficult conversations? Lord knows we need it right now. You know, we're, we're, we're in the center of the storm in many ways for the cultural conversations that are happening, right? We're also a part of Florida. We're, we're, we're the number one joke when the Oscars opened the other night. We are, because of being a part of Florida, we're also a part of the American Southeast, which I think we find to be a really interesting position to work from as well. So we've built up our collection of artists from the American Southeast, which includes a lot of vernacular artists, a lot of artists who are self-taught, who are working with materials that are often found or considered to be detritus. We're interested in that space just as much. But here we are being in this city that is experiencing the kind of growth that it's experiencing. 
for many different reasons. But I think it's pretty easy to see Miami as a as a as a center of the crossroads and of our institution trying to be a, a helpful position within that conversation. Wow, man, what a, what a unique opportunity. And, and, you know, I'm personally really happy that you're a spokesperson for that kind of energy because, I, you know, I, I feel the same, you know, I've, and I want to get into this in a, in a few minutes because we've lived in the same cities for the most part, New York, yeah. um, Los Angeles, and Miami. And I'm interested in your comparative analysis, you know, about those places culturally. Oh, yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And I also, frankly, and I'm, I'm very, you know, New York was this way too, but Miami even more intensely where you're very much aware of the diversity, you know, yes. the, I mean, we, we're doing a house in, in, in Miami and it struck me the other day, we had our roof being worked on and the brother who was working on the roof had an entire crew of Jamaicans. Yep. And it's so rare, you know, in LA that you see black folks doing construction, sure. you know, and I was warmed by, it. I took a picture. I was like, there were 10 guys on my roof and they were all black. And that might've been the first time I ever saw that, you know? I hear you. And Miami is just unique that way. And you go from that to little Haiti to the Cuban expand. I'm really feeling that. So we'll, we'll touch yeah. on that in a minute. So Art Basel, can you talk a little bit about Art Basel and offer some context about the impact on Miami, given the prominence of the festival and the world stage? And then I also, I read an article, I don't know if you saw that article in the New York Times yesterday, which was a little bit, or Sunday rather, which was a little bit critical of Art Basel and its decadence and how that runs counter to the narrative that the art world knows his importance in terms of important terms of how we need to preserve the planet. <laughs> so anyway, elaborate on our Basel, if you would. I mean, our, our Basel happened first in uh, 2002 and in, in the real way, but, but it really began in 2001. And I think they, they paused in 2001, but a lot of other quote unquote satellite art fairs happened nonetheless. And so we're talking about now in more than 20 years, of this incredible event coming to Miami every single year at the beginning of December and sort of kicking off a conversation for many people about how art can play a role in their life. That's the thing that excites me the most about Art Basel, right? When we talk about Art Basel, we can say it's the fair, the one in the convention center, but it's much bigger than that. It's all of the activity that happens around us. It's, it's, things that happen in hotels. It's the, the economic impact is, is incredible for our city and for our county. And so I, to me, it's, it's, it's a celebration of art unlike any other in this country, that it happens to come out of commerce and not a conceptual exhibition is I think the part where some people are, are, are questioning, you know, it's, full value, but I, I'm a fan. I've been coming since 2001. I feel like it also is an opportunity for us to share what we do uh, on an everyday basis with, with, with a wider world. And as much as we are concerned with the local and the community that we are a part of, we also are dedicated to an international and, and global conversation. So we welcome you know, when all of those people come to town from all over the place, it's a phenomenal time to be here. It's, it's electric. There's an energy that is something that we're going to see, I think, a lot more often. And it won't only pertain to an event like Art Basel. It's going to pertain to big, look, Aspen Ideas is coming to Miami this year for the first time. 
The Greenwich Economic Forum happened in Miami this year for the first time. Can't even, you know, Miami Tech Week. These things are, are, are big global events. And the fact that we've been able to lead that conversation from the point of view of art and artists, to me, is, is a real, it's a special, special, special thing that we have to, to, to celebrate. Yeah, thank you for that. And we're going to, as I said, we'll, we'll come back to some of this conversation. But I want to sure. take a step back a little bit here. As I mentioned, <clears throat> you were born in New York City and you attended both private and public high schools. You earned an English and heart, uh, I'm sorry, you earned English and art history degrees from Wesleyan, yep. uh, where you wrote your honors thesis on the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat and you graduated in, in 91, I believe. I read at the start of your professional career, you were writing about music for hip hop oriented magazines. And you mentioned Scott Paulson, Brian and Kevin Powell, yeah. who I became familiar with when they started uh, Vibe Magazine in the 90s. Oh, you yeah. switched over to visual arts after you, quote, saw early that I did not have the music chops of Kevin or Scott Polk and Brian, <laughs> who I deeply admired and soon saw that I could have an angle when it came to the visual arts and delivering them to an audience that might not have been familiar with their work, end quote. So I doubt that you didn't have the chops, but that's very <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about where and when the interest in art began for you and what led to your decision to pursue visual arts as a career after initially starting to write about music? Yeah, for sure. Wow, I, I must have been being really honest. Um, <laughs> Cause that's, that's totally true. And I would add people like Mimi Valdez and Joe Morgan and Keener Mayo to, to that conversation as well. And of course, Greg Tate, rest in peace, was the one that was kind of uh, the, the, the godfather of, of us all. You know, I, I mean, I think, I think you can relate, right, in a way. Like I had a kind of fortunate experience in New York. My father went to Meharry, had gone to Lincoln, and had a, a medical practice in New York City as early as the, the mid-1960s. And so by the time I was born and growing up in New York in the 70s, I was exposed to artists as, as if they were just regular folks that, you know, happened to find a different way of, of living. They didn't get up and go to a job every day, but they, they lived differently. And, and, and frankly, it was special to me, but it wasn't not, you know, it wasn't extraordinary. It was, it was, it was nice to see. And I think I might've had some appreciation, but I probably would have preferred to be at a Jets game or a Knicks game. And, and it was just there, but it wore off. And obviously it wore off in a big way. I mean, I worked for an artist named Ed Clark when I was still in high school, Al Loving, another artist that was around constantly, Nanette Carter. I mean, you know, meeting, and, and knowing these people to some degree, as much as one could as a, as a young person talking to an adult artist, but it, it definitely wore off. But yeah, in, in many ways, I had an incredibly fortunate experience in, in New York. I went to an incredible school called Manhattan Country School on the Upper East Side on 96th Street. And that place was just crazy, super special, you know, it was, it was one of those weird things that can happen in New York City at that point in time where you had this coalition, I think it was a, a very much a, a Black Jewish coalition that built this school in, in, in the name of Dr. Martin Luther King and, and wanted to see kids exposed and wanted to see kids exposed to things that they weren't um, going to be. For me, that meant going 
farm and learning how to milk a cow and, and you know, shear a sheep as much as it meant being exposed to any quote unquote culture or art. So it was a, it was a, a, a very warm and, and, and a special place in which to grow up and, and the exposure to different things, I guess, led to an interest that was developed much, much later. I can pinpoint it actually. Being exposed to artists from my father, I always felt like, okay, so your relationship to abstraction is kind of like my relationship to hip hop, right? You could even say relationship to abstraction and jazz versus say a more realist kind of expressionist painting and hip hop music. That was what related to me. 1985, I saw the cover of the New York Times Magazine with Jean-Michel Basquiat on the cover. And it was like, oh, so this is what art is like in the moment, as opposed to something that had a little bit more of a historical touch to it. And that's that that kind of in a cliche way set me off in, in many ways. I would say. Well, let, let's stay there for a minute then. You know, and, and as you mentioned, in the 80s and 90s, as hip hop was becoming the dominant musical force, the art world witnessed the rise and untimely death of Jean-Michel at, uh, I think, 28 years old in uh, 1988, and uh, whose work in 2017 sold for $110 million, I think, at auction and became one of the 10 most expensive artworks of all time. Yeah. In preparing, frankly, for our conversation, I watched some video footage of Basquiat. One of the videos was about 30 minutes long. You've probably seen this many times. And it took place at his Crosby uh, Street studio in 1983. Mm-hmm. And man, you know, he speaks in thoughtful but halting sentences. He's mischievous, playful, serious, skeptical, wary, and yep. insanely insightful, you know. You, and you can't take your eyes off of them. I mean, like charismatic off the charts. Yep. So how did you first become, you mentioned the New York Times uh, place, but ha- piece, but how did you first become aware of Jean-Michel and what makes his art, if you can, if you can define it in a way, what yeah. makes his art so unique? Can you talk about how rare a talent and an individual that he was? Yeah, well, he summed up like hundreds of years of, of art history in like, a minute. I mean, basically, he made like a thousand paintings in the course of eight, nine years. And and the relationship to Greek mythology, African history, histories of colonialism, histories of anatomy. I mean, it's it's literally he was trying to do absolutely everything. And he synthesized so much that I think that's why we all find it so still so 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 resonant and so important today even if we were just to look through the lens of say hip-hop right an artist who worked with text an artist who was aware of the kind of rhythmic power of simply you reading words right making poems on street and then putting them on canvas and then putting them together with images and symbols i mean who can't relate to the crown why does every hip hop artist even now want to wear that crown? And it, it, it has that kind of resonance. The, the impact that he, he made in terms of somebody who was astutely aware of all of the art history that came before it to the point where he knew I was always going to advance on that. I always want to make something stronger. I always want to make something that makes people think differently. And he did it in different parallels, right? There's a big, huge painting that's coming up for auction in a couple of weeks. And and it might be the highest selling 
auction record ever. I think it already is at 110. But it's a piece that has no text, which to me is like, okay, that's one way to experience the work. I'm such a good, I can just paint, like do a figure like this and you love it. But then you also have these works where it talks about these histories, these histories of colonialism, these histories that only a person, I think a person of color growing up in New York City in, the, in that time period in the 1970s, you know, born from a Puerto Rican mother, a Haitian father living in Brooklyn and is gonna give you a, a, a vision of the world that comes out of that space in a way that no one else can. And he did that um, so well, and he did it relentlessly, I mean, to, to his own, you know, detriment. Yeah, unfortunately. But, you know, when you see someone like that, Franklin, it's almost like they, you know, you, you start to wonder if there was not, you know, a life before this life. Yeah, for sure. Someone that just, I mean, you described his background and, you know, Haitian and Puerto Rican and Brooklyn and all that goes into the gumbo and the pot that creates the Jean-Michel. But it's just such deepness that suggests that this soul was, that this was not their first visit. <laughs> I totally, totally, totally agree. And, and if you think about the reference points, I mean, the, the reference points to somebody like Da Vinci being uh, a jump off for him in terms of explorations of the human body, that's one facet of the work. And then to think about the relationship to historical figures in terms of politics. I mean, that's just one aspect. There's so many different ways in, in, in which we still have to parse the work that was left behind. And, and that's part of what makes it so strong. Yeah. You know, I've been watching the, the Warhol Diaries on Netflix. And of course, it's fascinating as it focuses quite a bit on New York City in the 70s and 80s, which were formative decades for me living in the city. And of course, you know, Warhol and Jean-Michel had a unique relationship in the documentary does delve into that, you know, two really yeah. fascinating individuals. You know, in a line from the documentary, Andy, quote, wishes he was beautiful, you know, it really struck me. I remember that line from a Counting Crows song, Mr. Jones, you know, how I wish I- Oh, wow, beautiful. yeah. And, you know, his, his seeking of the, the glamorous life that juxtaposed to his own struggles with his, you know, sure. attractiveness or, or lack thereof that, that just stayed with me. But yeah, I'm sure you have you have you watched the diaries and, and you know, have you, you seen the, the Warhol diaries? I've seen the first two episodes, so I haven't gotten to the Basquiat part yet. Oh, good. Okay. But you All know, right. I'm totally, I'm totally in that space right now. I just came upstairs. We're installing this exhibition of uh, Warhol and Marisol right now. And that opens in a couple of weeks. I can't wait to see that, man. But I'm curious about your thoughts on how culture was shifting in the 80s, particularly in New York. You know, I had Fab Five Freddy on the podcast a, a month or so ago, yeah. and we both kind of like had a really fun moment because I started venturing out to downtown. You know, I was on the Upper West Side and it, you know, was still kind of, a, you know, you, you, you started to explore a little bit downtown, but Nell's was really like, the first place that I got into that was like the cool downtown club. I wasn't cool enough to go to area or maybe a little too young, but um, I wasn't getting in there, but got into Nell's, saw the scene. Of course, you know, you had Naomi Campbell and, and Russell, you know, in the, in the room upstairs, but I went downstairs, Franklin, and for the first time in a, in a room that was not like one of our little house party rooms, I heard like Rock Creek Park. Yeah. the blackbirds and shit yeah. spinning on the turntable and i looked over and it was his sister belinda 
And I really felt like I was in a moment of culture merging and Franklin uh, and Fab and I had a moment where we, yeah. we both kind of felt that way. But I'm curious your spin on the 80s and when you started to feel like the culture is colliding and something new happening that way. Yeah, I, I think I was, I mean, just a little bit behind, you know, I, so I, it was, it was so, it was so evident you could feel it. Like I was going to, I remember going to school in um, 82, 83, and my father, we had moved up to Westchester by then. So my father would drop me off at Presbyterian because he worked at the hospital and I would take the train down from there take the A or the C down to 96th Street and then cross over. And you can feel the, you can feel the change. And that's only to upper Manhattan. And then for us, it was like adding Astor Place and adding downtown to the conversation that there was something live wire that was going all the way through these, these cultural kind of territories and a sense of synergy and a sense of mix sense of diversity that that perhaps had not already existed. So yeah, I was in that moment of the mid 80s. I also happened to, I don't know, go to school with some really interesting performers who were making their mark at, at that time, which was first off DJ Stretch Armstrong was my eighth grade classmate and taught me so much about listening to music in that moment, everything from Duran Duran to The Clash to, you know, Grandmaster Flash. And then and then moving to Westchester and, and being there with Brand Nubian and being there with Grand Pooba and you know Pete Rock and CL Smooth and 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 Diddy doing things. So it was it was that that moment, I think, of of coming together that is a part of what at least I've tried to think through in terms of exhibitions. I mean, the first show I did was a show with Lydia Yee at the Bronx Museum called um one Planet Under a Groove, Contemporary Art and Hip Hop. And it was specifically meant to say that this is a space where we all come together, we speak the same language, we appreciate each other and, and similar aspects of living. And that was, that was the goal of, of the exhibition, was to reflect that kind of moment. And yeah, I mean, it's just a special, special place to think about. Yeah, man. And you, yeah, you're very kind. You are a few years behind me, so I'm, uh, we can acknowledge that. We're <laughs> not cool enough to get in. I know. I it's funny, man. I was standing outside in Nels and I was working with Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson. They had opened oh, yeah. a place called 2020 on 20th Street. And a male model had come in there, a guy named John Enos. I had the, I'd hired the Ohio players for a weekend and John came in, white guy, very popular male model. And uh, he and I, you know, he's I, I was fascinated that he thought the Ohio, Ohio players were cool. So we met that night. So a few nights later, I'm standing, you know, on the other side of the velvet rope at Nell's, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how I'm going to get in. And John Enos walks up behind me and, and I end up going in with him. And that started a friendship with us. But it, it gave me entry into that world that I, that I didn't know before and has, you know, kind of really altered my perspective about life and really uh, enriched me in ways that I, I probably shouldn't even try to articulate. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, but that's what it's all about. It's like, you know, the, the Lisa Soto connection is, right. is also a huge thing in that conversation. My mother was also, a, my stepmother was an entertainment lawyer. So, you know, there was, I remember one night at Nell's actually, my boy Rob and I, 
ran in, were having an issue at the Velvet Rope. And, and Johnny Kemp, for some odd reason, pulled us into his, his little cohort. I, I have no idea why. <laughs> but yeah, it was special like that. Yeah, I love that, man. You know, Johnny Kemp was a seller regular at my dad's project. That was, that was uh, <laughs> he was our regular guy. Funny you would mention Johnny. So I'm, I'm curious, man, just in on, on Basque for back for a minute. Sure. So his work that I was speaking of earlier, I believe was called Untitled, that sold uh, in 1984 for about $19,000. And then an astonishing $110 million in 2017. What happened in the art world, Franklin, that would cause such a, a, a work of art to just rise so astronomically? I, mean, I think there's two things. One of those things is in the art world, is that players have changed, not enough, not enough yet, but players have changed, right? You have the reference points to what Thelma Golden has done at mm -hmm. Studio Museum in Harlem or what Lowry Sims has done at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I'm not even going to go into the younger folks of, of, of now, but the scope of connoisseurship, the scope of, of scholarship and, and really rigorous kind of formal examination of art and artists over time has changed a little bit and has opened up that conversation around Basquiat that should have been bigger when he was alive. So that has happened. The other thing is that the, the special thing that happens and why we see those numbers is that didn't matter in some ways because Basquiat lives outside of those circles, right? It's, it's way bigger than that, right? The, you, you see Basquiat on Uniqlo, you see Basquiat on, on brands, you see Basquiat and he's discussed from the point of view of celebrity, from the point of view of musical performers, from the point of view of architects, designers, restaurateurs. Everybody has a reference point to Basquiat that they feel is, is their own cord to that creativity. And thus the conversation is so much bigger than an art historical conversation. I think that's one of the most, one of the biggest reasons why that conversation has changed so drastically. And the other thing is as, 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 some, as some curators who were in positions of power at that time have admitted, they just couldn't see it, right? Mm -hmm. And, and they couldn't see it because they didn't know where it came from and what it was about. If you don't know anything about African art and you don't know anything about vernacular art in the American Southeast, and you don't know anything about more of a mix of culture, then you have no way to really see the work. You're only seeing like a piece of it. And so I think that a lot of people have managed to um, catch up on that conversation. Yeah. How embarrassing, you know, history can be because I know Basquiat was written off as unsophisticated and not learned and he was anything but either of those two things, which is anything but. all the more incredible. So I'm curious, Franklin, if, if you were, if, if Jean-Michel were alive today, how do you think he would view social media? Would he, would he post on Instagram? That's a tough question, Brad. I would say that he would probably post on Instagram under a, an alias. And, and it would probably be something that was a mix of, of, of poetry and, and visual elements that had that trademark kind of energy, but, but I think it would be done under a different guise. Yeah, yeah, interesting to think about. So 
Franklin, you have had, and I've been listening to quite a few of them, you've had some very heady conversations and interviews, especially when you're talking with someone else that, you know, is, is a peer of yours in the art world, like Jessica Beck, the curator of the Andy Warhol Museum. Mm. Listen to the great conversation you had with her. But I have to tell you, I had a very funny moment listening while listening to one of these conversations. And one of those conversations where I had to play it back a couple of times to like make sure I got the gist of what was being talked about. You were on a Zoom call and I think you were working at home. I think it was during the pandemic. And while you're in the middle of making some very profound point, your niece Shiloh bursts <laughs> into the room screaming at you because she wants your attention. <laughs> I don't know how old she is. Maybe, what is she, three or four or something like that? <laughs> she's, she's eight now. Okay, she's eight. So anyway, she comes screaming in. And you say, in the middle of this, like, you know, heady, heady conversation, you use the expression, my niece is bugging. Like, go right back to our terminology and, like, be completely relatable. That's when I felt like he was, like, way above. Yeah, that, that'll do it. Man, my niece is bugging. I thought that was great, man. I just wanted to uh, thank you. If I could get you to chuckle about that. Absolutely. Uh, I read a quote of yours that you said, quote, that you were not interested in art for art's sake. It's mm -hmm. all about art as a connection to and a way of explaining other issues. And quote, you went on to say, quote, how does art play a role in daily life? And mm -hmm. art has the ability to be a catalyst for different difficult conversations, end quote. So can you speak generally about how you think, how you think art of art as a means to address issues and speak about a few of your curated exhibits at, uh, or the museum events generally that provide you an opportunity to highlight broader issues? You know, art is a catalyst for difficult conversations. Oh, for sure. You know, I think part of that stems from Part of it stems from an idea of that, yes, we can appreciate moments in which we think about art for art's sake, right? Like, I used to go to the Met and, and sit in front of those, those water lilies by Monet, right? And, and I don't know what, you know, beyond being in that room and in that moment and just taking it in, I'm not sure what else it's, it's, it's doing for, for the world. But, but I say that as, as much to say that I believe in this, in this world right now that we live in, that art is that one place where we can come together over things that we find, find disagreeable, that we find hard to get around, that we find difficult to have conversations about. And so that has been something that has been constant exploration you know from from the hip-hop show where you probably had a lot of people especially in that moment you know hip-hop is bad like it's it's about bad lyrics and it's not good for kids and you got to put parental advisories on it so part of that show was about exploring the complexity of what it is we call hip-hop that, that to some people was just rap and had nothing to do with this incredible flowering of of dance this incredible flowering of of aerosol art, all of these different elements. And so that was one way of addressing that and, and thinking through that. One of the things that, that or, or a recent exhibition that we had on view was an exhibition of work by a Colombian artist named uh, Beatriz Gonzalez. And, and Beatriz's atrocity in many ways. And, and, and like 
for real historical atrocities that happened in our lifetimes not so long ago about the ways in which people did not see each other and thus felt that they could violate and, and, and hurt others. And of course, as human beings, you know, we go through these cycles. We're in a terrible cycle now. And if, if we think about Ukraine and the relationship to, to Russia, this idea uh, of people not wanting to understand each other a little bit better. So we try to use exhibitions like that, or Dora Salcedo, who actually is also Colombian, but comes at it from a much subtler, more abstract kind of nuanced view, is that we can find beauty in objects, right? We can use them for that art for art's sake element. But if we spend a little bit more time, there's something beneath the surface, there's something more to talk about. And those, so those are just a couple examples. For me, the most relevant one that, that, I, that comes to mind right now especially um, in the wake of, 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 of COVID, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, Brianna, and on and on and on, is a work by Arthur Jaffa. It's a video installation that we had up at the museum where we actually had kids and police officers, Miami-Dade County police officers, come in and look at the work together and talk about it. Now, what this work is, is it's a seven minute, not diatribe, but a video installation of clips that go by really fast of the history of the ways in which black folks in this country have been treated. And it's hard to look at at times, but it also includes many of the many images of jubilation, of joy. So it's a complicated piece that deserves to be looked at for a little bit of time. And when you bring together two different elements of people, you can see very clearly how my lived experience, although I may even look like you, my lived experience is not shared. And when I see a police officer do this, I don't think the way that you do. And then to have another person say, well, this is where I come from and this is the way that I see that movement brings us just a little bit closer. I mean, to me, that's like people say, what is the most valuable work in the collection? And it's not the, 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 the monetary value. It's the value of how it can have an impact on individuals. And that piece has had profound impact on, on kids, on police officers, on us, because we are watching people interact with this work. You see people in tears. So it's a, it, it, those are the kind of moments I think we live for and we strive for. But we always try to do that with a sense, always trying to provide uh, a way out, a way to have a conversation without, you know, turning to violence, for lack of a, a better word. And what a fabulous idea that was. I mean, talk about community policing. I mean, that's like, you know, this is yeah. a whole level to bring them in the same room and witness what you just described. That, yeah. That's awesome, man. You you touched on just now, you know, Ukraine and, and you know, it, it gets me to thinking about, you know, the, the existential crisis that we, crises that we all, you know, For sure. worry about these days. And there's a piece on display when you enter the museum now about Chicago Duncan called Pretentious Crap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's this artist, in my opinion, this artist's expression of what we may ultimately do to the planet. The, the description itself is haunting and it reads, quote, Serving as a critical allegory, the installation encapsulates challenges humankind faces because of pollution, overpopulation, and the unchecked extraction of natural resources. 
What is presented is an account of what me what may have happened is really a vision or is really a vision of what may yet be to come. So just curious, you know, with, with the political discord, the pandemic, global warming, Ukraine, yeah. talk of nuclear weapons, World War Three, all the news. I mean, is this inevitable, Frank? I mean, is is that what we're looking at? Like the, you know, are we just going to melt into the the earth here at some point? What? How do you feel when you when you view a piece like that? When you think about what it represents potentially? I mean, it, it gives me hope on one hand that if you can think through the the, the worst, if you can think through the most calamitous result, then you have an opportunity to change it. And so I think it's about artists pointing us in the right direction in which to confront the things that we don't, you know, value enough or see as important enough to change in the here and now. And that artists have a, a sense for where those things end up in, in, in the future. And that if we do heed the power of visual art or all of the arts, really, then then we could be doing a service to us all. That reminds me, of, like Teresita Fernandez was the last exhibition that we had before COVID. And it was all about the scorched landscape of, of the United States. I mean, she does that with beautiful glittering mosaics and things like that. So it looks like a gorgeous black and orange kind of image but it's really about a scorched america and 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 that was the last show we had up and it was i don't know i think prescient in terms of the world that we then lived through for the last couple of years yeah yeah and franklin as i alluded to up front you know you've lived in this, some of the same cities as me primarily yeah. new york los angeles and and now miami and, you know, I've been coming to Miami since the 80s. I've always been fascinated by the city and thought, you know, at some point I'd love to get a place here. And, you know, here I am. But I'm curious, you know, how you view Miami in relation to New York and Los Angeles. The city, certainly thanks in large part to people like the creator of the design district, Craig Robbins, has evolved into a very dynamic place. It's not just a place whose main attraction is the beach anymore. Yeah. Although I do love the water and the weather. I'm curious about your thoughts and, and do you miss LA? Oh man. Well, first off, I mean, I think, you know, this moment in time here is one that is 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 just so, so ripe with possibility. There's the concrete possibility of being able to build a new world or a new building in a very simple way, right? You can't go to Fifth Avenue and 50 something street and say, I'm gonna build a new building. It's just impossible. But here that's happening. Like I'm looking out my window right now, there are two gigantic cranes over there, two over there, one over there. And so there is this very real physical environment that is changing right before your eyes and it's happening rapidly. Then there is the possibility for us to potentially create a space in which people live together better, right? We've been tested in the past. I mean, I, one of the things I find interesting about our short history as a museum is that we were born out of the early 80s, a time when Time Magazine called Miami Paradise lost. You had immigration, you had forced migrations happening. You had a displacement of, of Black people that has happened in 
repeatedly in, in, in countless cities across this country. You had people who were not seeing eye to eye, people who, who didn't even speak the same language. And then on top of that, a little bit of a economy of, of, of drugs and violence that is, is a part of that past. And it was a crucial time in which for people to, to, to figure out a way to live together. And, and I think having lived through that, that aspect, we are in a position where we can do better in the present. And I think do better in ways that other um, cities have not been able to, because it is so prevalent. It's so in your face. Like you say, you, you can go through little Haiti, you can go through little Havana, and there is this possibility of trying to find a place in which all those those people can come together, I think, is what we find so much sustenance in. On top of that, you have a whole new population coming in constantly and kind of giving you all of the, the best merits of what a open society can be, one that is inviting and not trying to throw up walls and boundaries around people, but one that invites people to the table. So it just feels like that's the thing that excites me the most. Like I, I and I also used to, you know, to come through here, we would visit people, friends and family in, in, in the Caribbean. And to see the way that the city has changed is, I think, where we want to be right now and gives us the chance to create a different future. So that's, that, I think that's what's so exciting about this place. And it's not, you know, everywhere has its merits, but I don't think you feel it the same way, the same concentration as you might in other places. Yeah, you know, that's um, interesting that you point that out because in heading to the museum and my friend and I, Connie Napier, who's lived in Miami for 30 years, we both were just marveling at the cranes and the construction that's going on and that, what you talk about the new energy that's coming into the city man is is really vibrant and exciting and i and i love the what your description of it so just a couple it, more things before it, I it also you. just reminds me of the value of like like people talk about why 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 diversity or why should you be inclusive and it's just like it makes everything better it's like it's so obvious i love rooster in harlem but i also really love rooster here because it takes a little bit of here, a little bit of Haiti, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of something else in that mix and it changes it around. And, and there's, I think there's something, there's something really valuable in that. And, and that's what excites me. Like our staff is coming from many different places and that's what makes it so interesting that because people have ideas because they see things a little bit differently, a little bit different lived experience. And when you put it all together, it makes for something I think more powerful than if everybody came from the same place and thought the same way. Yeah, I would agree with you there. And I, and I do see, you know, kind of a, a difference between LA and Miami in that way. And I, and I love Los Angeles, so nothing encouraging about, about LA, but I do feel a certain vitality to Miami. And that, you know, obviously, you know, we have the, the Florida issue, you know, you mentioned the being the brother yes, of the up front, you know, at the Oscars, you know, very aware of that, as I explain why I'm spending time in Miami to my to my Los yeah. Angeles friends and New York friends. But you, when you have to be on the ground here to really get a sense of that energy that, you know, is, is kind of coalescing around the city in a very interesting way. And I'm so glad that you are here to to lead, you know, for, you know, in, in some ways that vision. So last couple of things here. I have to admit, Franklin, that there was a time 
I did not pay as close attention to the art world as I as I do now. Yeah. A friend of mine had let me stay in his New York uh, City apartment years ago. It was on a very high floor and had an amazing view of the Hudson River. He rightfully chastised me when I told him how phenomenal the view was because I failed to notice or mention the Charles White work <laughs> that he had on the walls. I was embarrassed that these magnificent works of art were something that I could possibly miss. <laughs> so <laughs> you've spoken about broadening, <laughs> broadening the appeal of the museum experience to younger people and those who haven't necessarily grown up with having had museums as regular experience. How do you grow and engage a younger audience who, you know, have so much competing for their attention these days? Yeah, it's, it's you know, we're trying to just ask the question of, of them. You know, what do you, literally, what do you want to see? How, to, how can this fit into your life? I mean, I think we believe in an overall structure that, that, that the arts are, should be accessible to, to everyone. And so we, we created a thing called Kids Pass, which allows for every single kid in the Miami-Dade County public school system to come for free at any time, bring an adult. So that was, to me, that was one hurdle. And, and shout out to uh, Superintendent Carvalho, who, who went from here to L. Play recently, um, who helped us put that plan together for the school system here. But to me, that's the that's the thing is, what do people want to see? So we know there's enough data, there's enough uh, anecdotal evidence to suggest that there's a generation younger than ours that has a relationship to screens and visuality that is quite different. And to acknowledge that is one thing. And to say that you know, for some kids, the idea of going like this on a screen is just, it's what they do. You, you read the screen with your finger and I didn't grow up that way, but that's part and parcel of how the world is experienced right now. So we always try to have at least one or two moving image installations on view at all times. One of them right now is actually also can be experienced on the weekend with the uh, new Oculus headsets. I did that. So, Oh, cool. 360 oh, VR. Yeah, this is my yeah. first experience with those headsets, man. That, totally that different. Yeah. <laughs> so we're trying to, you know, we're open to the changing conversation and, and open to the conversation around NFTs that has become so, so prevalent in the last couple of years. Always trying to, to be of the mind that there is something to learn and that we do not know. I think the other thing we also benefit from here is, like I said, about that staff experience. Imagine if we all were the same age, that would be horrible. So we have a bunch of interns that are like, you know, barely out of school. Some of them are still in school. And, and I'm like, well, what do you want to see? And so they're helping to guide that conversation. So I think that's, that's, that's also the beauty of, of you know, diversity in effect. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool, man. On that note, Franklin, I recently read an article about the Baltimore uh, Museum of Art having their guards act as curators, part of a national reckoning by museums striving for diversity and inclusiveness and looking for original ways to bring a range of voices to interpret the art. And initially that seemed kind of counterintuitive to me, but the guards were up to it, man. They were, you know, worthy and, and really stepped up. And I'm just, you, I mean, you kind of alluded to that with some of your young staffers, but uh, might we see your uh, your guards and some uh, some some of the folks at the museum have some say in what, what artwork starts to be displayed there? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, that, that's a brilliant move. I mean, we've we've had 
informal conversations and taking opinions into um, account, but to just let it let the reins go is also, I think, a, a really good way to explore what we can be and what we can be to other people. There's one group we have, which is on the youth side, which is called the PAM Teen Arts Council. And so they've been doing curatorial tours through the galleries. And it's an incredible, like they're an incredible group of just kids who are in high school who have expressed some interest in, in art in their life. And, and they're the ones that are telling the stories and they're, you know, Instagram takeovers and stuff like that. So we got to, we got, yeah, we got to keep open. And I think the the guard question is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was cool. All right. So last, last one, I want to close on something that you said and just get you to comment and comment on it on the other side. So you said, quote, and this is referencing the Allied with Power exhibit that recently wrapped. You said, quote, it's a timely effort. It's one that relates to some issues that are at times difficult and complex issues that artists deal with in a tremendous amount of nuance, which is what makes it so good in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And then you also go on to say, quote, but it also is a show about the vitality of life, about the joy of color, about the idea of living in a space of wellness, end quote. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really worthy cause, the idea or goal of living, quote, in a space of wellness. Mm. You strike me as an optimist. Is that space attainable, Franklin? I, I, I have to think optimistically. And I, yeah, I believe, I believe that space is attainable. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, that, that, the fun thing about having that show up and to have that show up during during the, the the renewed emphasis on civil rights, the renewed emphasis on Black Lives Matter was that it was 30 some odd artists and 50 something works from the diaspora, from the African diaspora. And so it wasn't only about, you know, what's happening to you here and now, which I think is the, the best hallmark result of some of those conversations in the last couple of years is that we recognize the community that is a global community and that we recognize the intersectionality of, 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 of all of us um, across the planet. And, and so not every story is the same. There were tough images in that exhibition, but I think the majority of, of those images were about really trying to figure out a way to live well. And, and everybody wants to do that. And I think that is, you know, that kind of brings us back to, you know, what does art do for you? And sometimes it's not, it doesn't have to be a remarkable learning experience, but how does it just be a part of your, your life? And, and again, a life well-lived includes some sort of appreciation for arts and culture. So I think that's what I was trying to allude to with that. There's a little bit of abstraction. There's a little bit of representation. There's photographic work. There's painting. There's, you know, whatever you can, can imagine in a way. And I think that's one of the things that we want kids to walk away from, from the experience, not just kids, but, but everyone from the experience that if I see one thing, I can do something to it to see it differently. Wow. Franklin Sermons, looking forward to following you wherever you take us, man. Oh, Thank man. You so Thank you, Brad. Hey, man. It really was great to see you and great to talk to you. Really good to see you, man. And looking good as always. And <laughs> look forward to seeing you in person. But thank you for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Same here, man. Thank you.
So here we are with uh, the lovely Ambassador Shabazz in our segment of the program we call How We Move, How Do We Move? Franklin Sermons is moving some things, huh? Well, I mean, what am I supposed to say? I mean, I smiled the whole time just because the intrigue, the fascinations. I mean, I would just love to have a seat amidst his like inner vision, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Just listening to how he would interpret like this poetic convergence of intellectual, generational, explorative expressions representing all of the global crossroads of culture and- Well, this his, is your wheelhouse. I, that's, I think that's why I was, my, my, I was cheesing. You know, my face, my, my, my cheeks are hurting because I got to hear it from someone who is really, who, who lives it, who lives it and is fulfilled by it and is in, uh, moved to make sure it's translated in ways and accessible for others and just the fascinations. I, I loved I loved his humor, his wit, his wit and his lens. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about when you think about museum experiences, you know, their field trips and all of those things. But my dad courted my mom for a year before he proposed. And mo most of that time was spent in museums. I mean, that was what their dates were, museums and libraries. <laughs> and I remember my mother came to visit me in L.A. and I said, Mommy, you, you want to you want to we have an exhibition that's on something or other. She goes, I have been to my share. <laughs> Well, she had been through it. She's in it. She's of it. She knows the oratories, you know, and she was coming to L.A. from New York wanting to put her feet up. But it's the same thing that she provided for us. I mean, the house was filled with information, both parents, you know, until my father was no longer with us. Just the fascinations and our pastimes, you know, of how we moved around and what we gleaned and understood and and, and you don't know that other people aren't learning and, and walking in the front door of, of an experience that may or may not be advertised to them, but just, but just daring. And so listening to his orientation as a child and what was exposed to him in the schools, all of those things matter, right? You know, if it's not from your house, it has to be in that school. If it's not in that school, who's that weekend coach? If it's not the weekend coach, who's in the neighborhood? All of those things really matter. And when he spoke towards the end about diversity, diversity is ideas. It's not just black, white. It's like ideas, exposures, and everything like that. All of that, that convergence, that union really does um, bring forth such unique birth of what you're saying is the awakening in, in Miami, for instance. Mm -hmm. right? You know, in our lifetime, Miami has had all kinds of signatures. Right. Yeah, when I, you know, in, in researching, you know, getting ready for today, I just, I kept thinking about you because of how comparable, you know, Franklin's pursuits and some of, you know, his goals and objectives just sound like your life, you know, bringing young people into, you know, atmospheres and environments that uh, they hadn't previously been exposed to, but also to the international kind of cross-section of culture that you just live with. I mean, people call you from all over the world and, you know, you've got a little bit of foot in this culture, a little a foot in that culture. And, you know, Franklin obviously is, you know, very much, you know, in, in the center of that here in, in South Florida, in Miami. But I'm curious, you know, with some of the work that you're doing in the school systems, how do you how do you see what role a museum and someone like Franklin with some of his initiatives and programs, how does that play into what what you might 
see is, is, is overlapping with what you do. Well, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of people forsake or don't realize what's in arm's distance all the time. So, for instance, a number of schools, both high school and university level, I've been speaking to, and some are trying to figure out how to find the funds to go abroad on an international delegation. And I said, abroad might just be outside of your zip code. And that's what we're curating right now, right? So we're not going to worry about who has a passport and who gets, you know, who's not ready to do that or the budgets that it takes. So right now we are curating because I'm right here in the shallow south. <laughs> that's what that's what they call it. The shallow south in Louisville. Not quite the south. <laughs> not the deep south. And that's either geographic or mindset, right? So I had to learn that because some of them are very proud of being from the shallow south. And, you know, makes them a little bit more progressive. But we right now are curating, and it'll sur surround in June before school is out, which also this year, people are curious, how do they have programming around Juneteenth? I come from a state where Juneteenth was not part of our rearing. And you have all of America is trying to get a hold of this paid holiday. And how do we spend it? What's the significance? Should it just be a, a day off? Or are we going to teach during that time? And so we have a high school delegation of 20 coming out of Newark and another coming a university in Los Angeles coming both at different times, but both will overlap during that Juneteenth period. And in the region, I mean, there's so much that goes on in Louisville, Kentucky. So I am now charged to curate each one of their five-day experiences. And yes, it will include permanent exhibits, such as at the Muhammad Ali Center, which has an amazing extraordinary permanent exhibit. But then they have another one, a temporary one right now called Shining the Light. It's their annual photographic exhibit. Mm -hmm. This year it's called Women and the Weight of Water. And it focuses on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, number which is about clean water and sanitary and who it impacts. You know, And there's diversity or lack thereof, there's equity and lack thereof in the context of water. So young people will understand something that's so basic and elemental, just like we know what happened in, you know, or when I moved to Los Angeles in the 80s and someone said, uh, how did you make this tea? I said, I got the bag from the club. No, where did you get the water? I said, from the sink. They said, oh, no. Now, from New York, you could drink the water. Drink from water. <laughs> yeah. At least we used to be able to. Well, I don't know yeah. The well, the thought for me in that context was, like, you mean, spending money on something we should have. So, <laughs> so, And then there's another exhibition at the Speed Museum, which is pretty famous art museum here, and it's called Sanford Biggers uh, Code Switching. And it's really inspired by creative narratives and legacies of the African-American quilters. So mm. this will bring messaging. And so they'll involve, get, be involved both sides. Also, Hamilton is playing at that time. I just don't know if we can get, get Hamilton tickets. It seems to be even in Kentucky, they have New York Broadway rates. Wow. But that would be interesting because this is the region where, where a lot of history took place at that time. So for me, it's not just a marching to and fro. It'll be socioacademic. They're going to go to a historic Black college while mm -hmm. here and hear those narratives. One of the professors at Simmons College of Kentucky was the officiant of Marcus Garvey and Amy Jacques Garvey's wedding. So we talk about the context of people in different places. We could talk about New York and LA. It's, you know, but what's happening in this middle America part? What's happening in the shallow South? Mm -hmm. What are the ideas? You can have someone like Mitch McConnell and you can have someone like Muhammad Ali, both about the same age, they're contemporaries. 
So we talk about even in one space, you can have converging or a, a different ideas. And, and yet people seem to live together here. Yeah, right. I'm curious, that, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm curious when Franklin spoke about the idea of uh, bringing officers from the Miami police force into yeah. the museum to, to view this film footage that collaged with the uh, young African-American kids. What, what do you think of when you, when you hear something like that? What do you think of the possibility in, of, an, of an outcome from something like that? Well, first of all, everybody is human, right? So we, we're appealing. So we know who people are in there by their day job. But who are you when, and it's one of the um, trainings that I do in corporate America. Who did you, what part of you did you leave in the parking lot, right? So who are these, are they parents? So we're, not, we're presuming there's only one characteristic of police officer, right? As opposed to the opportunity off record to be in a space where they can um, let down the shield, so to speak, set aside the blue. And who is it when you go home? Who is it when you're not at the job? What is it when you step away? I would imagine just as many officers of color, for sure, but notwithstanding, all of the, all officers have had losses. They know what that feels like. But do we have a sense of who they are? And are they allowed to reveal who they are? amongst the general population. I, it's touchy because I know people in these towns that wanted to advocate for cops, for police officers, and they got pushback. And so it's, it's tender, but I think it's essential for us to have collaborative conversations and we have to make sure that we're not speaking from rigid, rigid sides, which right. is also so who's it the certainly, It certainly humanizes both sides to the other. Well, yeah, right? you gotta, but you gotta have the conversation. So you know what happens when you're in the line of duty, you speak and toe the line. So mm -hmm. what what is the space that you can get into where we don't know that you're an officer, right? You're not coming in in blue. We get to just talk to a father or a mother or a sister, and mm -hmm. about real things that really impact and matter. I think it's the beginning. I think it's essential. You have to have collaborative communication and not propose it as if there's only one side. You can have your side, but you can't presume that the other side can't come in and share his or hers. Right, right. Ambassador Shabazz, what I tell you what I can't wait to do is uh, have you and Franklin Sermons over dinner at Red Rooster in Miami. How about that? We gonna do that? I'm ready, I'm booked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already booked. I'm looking up the menu online. Uh-huh. And that's how that's how we move it. All right. <laughs> how are we gonna move? We're gonna move to Red Rooster in Overtown and have dinner with Franklin Sermons. That sounds great. Boss.